Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And this is the New Statesman podcast. On this week's podcast... We'll talk about student fees. What's the row really all about? Then we discuss our favourite political dramas. Is it the West Wing? Is it Scandal? Is it Yes Minister? Or is it none of the above? There, it does feel like there's one big story for a given value of the word big. And Embrace it, it love story. it, Stephen. It's tuition fees. You know you want to talk about it, really. The Tories have made it of their big kind of, um, hey, so the Tories still exist as a party. That was an exciting revelation. They've been pumping out policy announcements like someone's got the handle stuck on their machine. It's, it's one of those things where the story itself is not interesting because it involves a incredibly literal... Uh, well, what, so what he of, said was, right, he said to the New Musical Express, as I old-fashionedly call it, um, during the election campaign, I will deal with it, right, when he took when, when people talked about historic student debt, so he, alongside a concrete manifesto pledge to end tuition fees, actually starting from the autumn, pretty much, or that they would get a rebate for people starting this autumn. What he said in his interview with the enemy was, and I'm going to paraphrase slightly, but I, I hope not, uh, in a way that distorts the meaning either too fairly or too unfair. Yeah, you know what I mean? He was asked, what about people who have already got tuition fee debt? And he was like, I'm aware of this problem. I don't have a solution to it. I think it's it's not fair to have like a weird generation which had to pay when the one before and after, didn't it? I don't know what the solution is because we've been caught uh, on the hop by this election. We will We will deal with it. Since the election, Labour has said, well, it is an ambition to deal with this tuition fee policy. And I they found a couple of um, MPs who'd gone a bit further foolishly, like had, had sort of represented it in more concrete terms than it was said by Jeremy Corbyn, right, as well, which helped the Tory attack line. In the, I mean, so I keep saying in the safe space of, of the podcast, and then I keep meeting terrifyingly impressive people who listen to it. But in the pseudo-safe space of the podcast... Yeah, I can't see them, and I can't hear them when we're talking now, and that makes it feel um, safe. It does feel that certainty that the tuition fee pledge is why Jeremy Corbyn did so well in the election is almost exactly linked with certainty that Jeremy Corbyn was not surging before the election. Yeah, I think there's a really interesting thing as well, which is, I think, which will eventually presumably start to spook the Tories in that they're swinging these punches that then actually aren't connecting. I was on Week in Westminster at the weekend, and one of the things that Peter Oborn said, and you know, I'm sure his Tory contacts are much better than mine, was that after the Corbyn speech after the terror attack, where he said, you know, this there is a blowback, this is we have to link this to Western foreign policy, he said that he thought the Tories at that point were like, well, we won this one then. 
and and actually it really didn't have the resonance and an impact with people that they thought it would and i think we've seen that same dynamic with tuition fees right they thought this is a pretty much a slam dunk so on the one hand there's the kind of the politics behind the politics which is that they have discovered having a grid again and a message and they've got their sort of message discipline back where they all kind of do that borg like thing of going ah students now you see and you know kind of they they've got this attack it's 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 you know they are successfully getting it out in 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 their you know in their sort of friendly media but they've also made enough noise and sort of everyone else has kind of had to respond or run something on it but i think there is a big danger to them that a lot of them seem to believe it Right, you know, it, it's one thing to kind of inconvenience the government by like, ha ha, you've got an ambition for it, and it is going to be a bit of a pain for Labour because it because writing off or ameliorating some of the debt is actually quite expensive. Um, well, it's, it's also not- given the Tories an attack line every time Labour talk about a, a popular policy. So you kind of everyone's talking about Labour's popular policy. You go bang, but why aren't we talking about this then? But I just think the problem is, is then. Most people, so the YouGov have polled asking people what they thought of the statement. Of course, in order to do the poll, they've had to show people the statement and go, look, what, what is your interpretation of this? We, of course, know in the nicest possible way to the enemy, a, a magazine I actually do make a conscious effort of, like, collecting whenever it's being given out of the station. Yeah, um, it's not the great election decider. But also just people don't read any piece or interview or magazine, even one they read only for... Uh, politics pieces um, with that sort of level of, of of detail, like things like that, don't cut through. So basically, we know that if you are, if you actively increase the salience of the issue, right? If you actively ask people to have an opinion on this quote, they kind of go, "Yeah, I think Jeremy Corbyn probably wasn't uh, trying to have his cake and eat it." There's there's really no point. Tuition fees moves two, well, three groups of voters one of whom is not really worth anything. People who believe very strongly in the principle of free education and universal service, that group of people, A, it's quite small, but also it's not worth anything to you because that group of people is voting for Jeremy Corbyn, right? They are immovable. Then there are parents of people who are paying tuition fees, who are worried about their children, right? They don't care about my tuition fee debt. Then you have people who are going through the system who are students who have not paid back or people who are going into university who are worried about the fee group. Again, maybe those people... Well, there's there's some evidence from the very unscientific metric of um, 18 to 21s who read Morning Call. Then some of those people do think it's a bit unfair. That, no shape, but how big can that sample size actually be? Depress- there's a depressingly large number of people who are like, okay, oh, if you are 18 to 21 90. and reading Morning Call, why are you awake at that? I mean, I know you send it out pretty late, but you should not be awake at that time in the morning, people. Um, Live your best life as a student. But, you know, th- those people kind of feel a, a bit concerned about, about my tuition fees. But the bulk of eight of people who who are paying back the fees they might go yeah in theory i'm not into it but it's they're either sort of pro it or they're anti it but in both cases when you ask them how much they actually care it's like it's you know it, it's it's not gonna make you go well now i'm gonna vote for the tories it's behind something like, say, Jeremy you know, like what's something which is important that i care about that no one else does i don't know international development or electoral reform right it's at that level of of salience right but, where, I th- but I, this is where i disagree with you because where i think this issue is important is that is the, the clue it gives to the, what the tory attack on jeremy corbyn for the first part of this parliament is going to be which is an attack on his integrity his attack 
attack on the idea that he's sui generis. You know, he's not a politician like the others. Yes, Nick Clegg might have lied to you on tuition fees, and yes, we might have lied to you on um, social care. But now, look, Labour are lying to you um, about this, and like he's just the same as the rest of us. I'm now starting to notice Conservative MPs who I respect, staffers who I respect, random people on Twitter being retweeted in my feed who genuinely. And then, you know, like commentators who seem to have become increasingly throffy since uh, since the election, who all genuinely seem to think that the tuition fee pledge did move voters. It's it's one thing to successfully, and in some ways, when you, you know, they've got effectively a whole new political team in Downing Street, it makes sense to roll out your new operation with an attack line you're not that wedded to mm-hmm. because it allows you to go, oh, so we've, we've, we've got proof of concept and we can launch a missile, right? And it's the same way you don't, you know, like you don't put your uranium in the first ICBM you send up, right? You, you do that later in your, your test flight. But I don't know why I chose to use that metaphor. But um, the difficulty is that... No one cares. No, it's not. If there's no new uranium, presumably people are not... Oh, no, the it. difficulty is, is, is if you launch the bomb and you go... Oh yeah, we've hit something with our our nuclear de- deterrent. I also think. The, Hang the on, thing- if you, no. If you hit wait, this is a terrible metaphor. If you hit something with your test flight of your nuclear deterrent, it's no longer a nuclear deterrent. It's just an actual bomb. But Stephen. I think things. But if, if people, but it's important for people to remember that their test flight doesn't actually have a ballistic payload in it. And I think that there is a risk to the conservatives, and they think that. I also think on the Europe thing, right. I'm certain that some people are going to turn around and go, wait, we've been had on, on Jeremy Corbyn and the, and the EU thing. At least, at least if you take an incredibly literal interpretation and just, like, ignore some of the words in the enemy interview, at least you've sort of got a leg to semi-stand on. On the Europe stuff, Jeremy Corbyn is an explicit Eurosceptic, right? He voted against every European treaty. He said in 2015 he hadn't closed his mind to exit. He whipped Labour MPs in favour of voting for Article 50. And I think it's always important to remember that not looking silly is quite an important factor in, in, in why people make decisions. Now, yes, there are lots of people who, because they pick up on the fact that in terms of the wider reasons they're into the EU, you know, they, they, they get that Corbyn is their guy and then Theresa May was not their guy and then Tim Farron was not their guy, right? And although all of those things are, are remain, that, that decision, I think, is slightly less daft than it seems, um, there will there'll, there'll be a group of people who will be angry with Corbyn for a stance that they kind of know they don't have a legitimate case to be angry with. I thought you were going to say there was legitimate concerns there, which no. is kind of a good phrase to use in the circumstances, because exactly the point about Corbyn's line that he was talking about immigration, about this wholesale importation of workers has driven down conditions for, for existing workforces, is that, you know, it's a, it's a really good proof of what tribalism looks like in politics, which is that because he has people's trust on that issue, he can say the same things that, uh, you know, that Ed Miliband was saying. And, you know, he, I mean, he, he hadn't put it on a mug, but he could put that on a mug. And it, it does exactly the same job, which is it's a signal to people who are worried about immigration that Labour's taking it seriously. But he's got enough goodwill that he's, he's able to do that. Yeah. And I think the other reason why the tuition fee thing... Uh, doesn't work and is a, a bad approach, right? Is and there is already a problem that voters, regardless of whether or not they, and actually, you, so you ask people, do you think Jeremy Corbyn gets a lot of flack? 
And they kind of go, yes. And then even if when you go, do you think that he deserves to be given a hard time, they go, yes. They still think the attacks are unfair. And I kind of think every time that the Conservatives are attacking Jeremy Corbyn on some abstruse thing about fees where most people didn't think that, it doesn't, they don't, it, it's not a chip in the kind of Corbyn edifice. It's it's blunting their own tool. It, yeah, it's yeah. another thing where people go like, oh, but they're always going on at him. And actually, to be honest, if I were the Tories, the attack line with the tuition fee pledge is not the, oh, he lied, because it's still an ambition. It's, they had a, one of the things they did very effectively is with their costings document, it meant that, the, and the fact that the Tories had not costed anything, meant that it was very hard for the right to go, oh, are there more tax rises to come? Whereas with the Eds, we all knew that Ed Balls and Ed Miliband wanted more tax rises than they were talking about, so they looked continually shifty, right? The prize surely here for the Conservatives to go, so... The, the, the commitment you'll owe to is 11 billion, but we know that you want to do something about the 100, million, the 100 billion, mm. therefore some other taxes will have to go up. That is a more intelligent attack line, and it also has the advantage that it is about something Jeremy actually said. Well, if you're listening, Conservative Party spinners, Stephen is available for contract work at, a, rates. <laughs> at a low, low price. Summertime and the living is easy. Summertime and the reading is easy. Um, in the magazine this week, we have a uh, best political novels that have been nominated by some really great contributors. Actually, I'm trying to remember what George Osborne's was, but I can't remember now. Oh, it was. I think it was the Master and Margarita. I like how you went to great contributors and then George Osborne. I, just, I know what our I just podcast listeners like. like. Um, now we've got Mary Beard. We've got um, other people who are probably more on brand for the Statesman, but um, uh, it just happened to be the one I was looking at before we came. And, and you'll hear from some of those um, contributors throughout the segment. But I want to quickly whip through. Um, I let's not talk books because you know who reads books anymore, Stephen? We're millennials. Um, tell me your favourite. TV show about politics. Uh, can I say Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy? Does that count? Only if you want me to give you some serious side eye, because that's also Jason's pick for his favourite political book in the uh, thing. So you're being very crawly there to the boss. I have actually, I I've read Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy at least once every year since like 2005 because I'm just that cool and every year I gain something new from it it's a really good and the TV show is it's not better but it's as good uh, Alec Guinness is, is George Smiley it's a brilliant brilliant performance I strongly urge you know if you haven't haven't seen it to to watch it you might worry and it's a bit confusing it's one of those things where it feels confusing but actually if you just like let it flow you understand it, as it were. It's weirdly one of those things which is more confusing if you try and puzzle it out yourself. But if you just let the the the, the, the sort of brilliant acting and the craft of it flow, you, you know. Sorry, you just made me think. Do you know what? It's a terrible film, and I know that lots of people that I know mysteriously really like this film, Bridge of Spies. God, that was a terrible film. Have you seen that? No, but I have a theory that um, it's Tom Hanks and Mark Rylance, which you would think, bingo, brilliant, yeah. Steven Spielberg directing. It's just nothing happens. I mean, the bit where Mark Rylance stands on the bridge is the highlight. Well, so I have a theory, and obviously there's a problem in the lobby that, you know, you don't want to look stupid, right? If I go to a press conference and I decide something is the line and someone, like, 
the spectator decides something, well, yeah, like labor list decides something different, then I may look foolish in you and Jason's eyes. But if we both collude and we decide that what the line is before, we can't get in trouble. Mm-hmm. I have a theory, and this happens with films which are boring or overly complex, in that no one wants to be the only film reviewer to be like, I didn't get it. Right, like Lincoln, right? Lincoln, a huge boring political... That on the on the plane, which was a bad idea anyway, but I just had two minutes of Daniel Day-Lewis and his absurd bow-selector chin sitting there, like, looking gloomy in the rain, and I thought, but I'm out. I'm no one go wants watch to the be one the only reviewer to Bear go... Grylls, like, takes Mel B into the wilderness. That's yeah. what I'm here for. Yeah, no one wants to be the only reviewer to go, Lincoln, pretty dull. <laughs> so, yeah, there's safety in numbers. So I, I also think Birdman is another example the of The worst this. film a, ever made? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I hate... I hate that. I hate that film so much. I hate everyone associated with it. If they all died, I wouldn't be sorry. Well, yeah. So, what's your favourite? Oh, I can't. I can't believe you've mentioned Birdman. I find the men- that bloody music that runs all the way through the. Yeah, sorry. But no one, no one wants to. Everyone wants to go. Oh, the single camera shot because that that opinion. No one's going to go. Oh, do you remember when so and so reviewed Birdman and went? To be honest, I was baffled. <laughs> like, you know, you don't want to be that guy. Yeah, the highlight was Edward Norton in his pants, and that wasn't even that much of a highlight. So, it got to the end, and my husband started shouting, jump, jump! And I thought, yeah, I'm kind of with you here. But Victoria, this is film review, this is my new segment I like to call Secondhand Film Reviews, he says is great, which is also which is actually genuinely filmed in one cut, right, right. rather than um, being made to look like it. Um, I'm going to nominate the uh, first House of Cards, the original TV show, Um filmed in like creaky square revision and on like best watched from the kind of VHS format uh, rather than the Kevin Spacey reboot just because I think it's as it's good yeah a because it's actually good and doesn't mistake stylishly you know drawing your finger around the rim of a glass for tension and also because it is as a period piece it's really fascinating because it feels very major era um, a time when actually when sex scandals I've written about this in my column this week sex scandals were still a thing we now Sex scandals really don't dent you. It's all money is the thing that we really find scandalous now, and the misappropriation of money, um, and just how blokey the House of Commons is. Which I know it's you know it's not unblokey now, but it does really that sort of sweltering public school atmosphere that you've got is is really well evoked by it. I think. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, my anti-nomination is the the modern one. Where I mean, so the one problem the British version has is whenever Ian Richardson's not on screen, you're kind of continually like, oh, I want him to come back. Why hasn't he come back? Yeah. But he's on screen for maybe 85% of it. Whereas, you know, like whenever Kevin Spacey's not on screen, yeah, I don't care about Claire Underwood's the Clean Water Initiative or whatever it was. Um, yeah, and and uh, her whole and and I feel like whenever I kind of flick onto it or hear something about it, her her aims have become even more implausible and boring and taking up. Like last time I checked, apparently she was angry because he was trying to focus on getting re-elected and she wanted him to appoint her to be his UN ambassador, which is like when this is like this doesn't make sense as a conflict because if. If he's not re-elected... He can't the, appoint you as UN ambassador Yeah, he anyway. can't appoint you as UN ambassador. And like, also, the trouble is that the Trump era has made implausible TV plots now to any plausible. You should be like, <laughs> what kind of crazy president would be able to appoint his wife to the UN? And then you go, yeah, that's... that's a total, it, It's only because Melania literally cannot be bothered to travel to the UN that that's not happened already. Um, I would like to nominate Scandal, but only the first three series until her dad turns up and it goes... T- 
literally too bonkers. It's one of those kind of classic TV series where you have a first series that's quite tight and quite episodic. You know, you have mystery of the week and then it gets carried away a bit like kind of the, the I guess the Russell T Davis era Doctor Two happened. Then the series arc begins to really take over, and actually you lose the kind of fun CSI kind of a different case every week aspect of it, and it becomes much more soapy. Nonetheless, the Shonda Rhimes dialogue I love. So I don't actually watch Scandal myself, but my partner often has it on when I'm w- secondhand working. TV reviews. What does your what does Felicity think about Scandal? And she really likes it, but I also quite enjoy the kind of. I, I think it's soapiness to me seems like part of my vicarious appeal is when I'm sitting there, you know, like writing my cookery column for the Guardian while she's list watching Scandal. Is when you hear lines like, "Well, we should never have replaced the president with a monkey," <laughs> and. It, I just think it's We're appeal gladiators is, in suits. That's my favourite one. It's appeal. Its appeal is to me. It's it's soap opera uh which also actually is going to drive my pick, which it, it kind of has a complex feeling about it, like the West Wing. Right? It's not the West Wing's fault that people took a brilliant, high class, openly high class soap opera and decided it was a manual for how to like revive the centre left in Britain this is a funny time because it's not the West Wing's fault we're we're talking the day after John McCain came back from his treatment for his brain cancer to make a speech in the Senate and everyone was like wouldn't it be amazing if John McCain came back from his treatment from his brain cancer to save healthcare and instead what happened is John McCain came back from treatment for his brain cancer to vote and an incredibly narrow vote that has to be broken on a tie by the vice president in favour of opening a discussion to take away millions of people's he healthcare. Didn't, he didn't even vote. It was like so- the anti-Sorkin. Then he gave a speech, like he gave a really sorkin speech about like, we've just got to get back to democracy. And you were like, this is bad. So this is, this, this is your fault, Aaron Sorkin, but because there is a weird, bizarro world version of you out there. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the weird thing about the, the McCain speech to to drift as we sometimes do is then there were two votes there was the the procedural vote to start voting and there was the other one which kind of defeated it for now although obviously it will be back he didn't vote the right way on either of them right and the thing is actually if you want to tell a story of what is wrong with the modern Republican Party. It's people like John McCain. If John McCain was as principled as he pretends to be in speeches, you know, he was like, oh, you know, actually, he's an American citizen. If he actually cared about any of that stuff, he'd be François Fillon. I never thought I'd ever say something nice about François Fillon, but... What do you mean by that? So and that Fillon, he'd have a terrible financial scandal and would eventually lose to Emmanuel Macron. No, because Fillon, right, faced with a choice between someone to his left who he didn't share oh, the politics of... you mean the, the of, lack of Le Pen endorsement? And... Ah. and and yeah, with the with the and and okay, yes, there are other reasons why the populist right has not been able to win elsewhere other than the U.S. Not least the fact that it could only win in the U.S. thanks to the electoral college. But another part of it is that the behaviour of the centre right towards um, oh yeah, the far, the far right, right. I was thinking about this in relation to you know um, Miley Yiannopoulos, who I know you've previously argued should be deprived of the oxygen of publicity. But on this one occasion, really interesting, his book. You know, this amazing book that was cancelled by Simon Schuster appears to have sold about you know twelve copies. I mean, I'm sure it sold like a thousand copies or something. It's like actually that. sold like 157 in copies. in Britain. It's really really yeah. low, right? And, because, and what that shows is actually when you're deprived of all you know, he was the guy was banned from Twitter for um, trolling the Ghostbusters actor Leslie Jones. He had his book contract dropped after making some very very borderline remarks about. 
uh, I don't know how we phrase this on the with the legal compounds of the podcast, uh, elder gentlemen having sex with younger gentlemen. Um, and then, you know, actually what happens, is it turns out without a huge edifice of stuff, his, his invitation to speak at the Republican conference was rescinded. You know, so without the centre indulging somebody like this, actually the actual fan base for them is, is really, really small. Yeah, and you know, the fact that people like McCain have sat there going, oh, it's awful, oh, we need to have more civility... I, of course, am voting for the guy saying, lock her up, lock her up. Yeah. Um, you know, does kind of, is, is actually their problem. I did think, weirdly, despite the fact that, you know, one of the other problems in American politics is that the uh, American, I always feel weird using the word centre-left in an American context, but the American centre-left, such as it is, yeah. um, rewarding Republican moderates for going, oh, this is terrible, 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 and now I'm going to vote for it. Weirdly, despite the fact I don't think for a moment that they arrived at the correct strategy for the right reasons, I think it was probably a good thing and they had the bizarre clapping of the, oh, this ill man has come back, because otherwise it would have allowed the Republicans to unify behind, oh, he's a veteran, oh, they're not respecting this this ill guy. But actually, yeah, John McCain is much more responsible, than I would say, than Trump, right? Trump quite clearly can't tell right from wrong. John McCain clearly can, because otherwise he wouldn't give these speeches in which he talked about doing the right thing. He just decides to do the wrong thing. And that's the fault of the West Wing. Yeah. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. And now we're going to hear from some of the New Statesman magazine contributors who are in this week's print title, Run, Don't Walk, Unless You Require Assistance, in which case whatever mode of transport is the best for you, to the shops to buy one. I'm Erica Wagner. I am a New Statesman contributing writer and I am the author of Chief Engineer, The Man Who Built the Brooklyn Bridge, which is published by Bloomsbury. My summer choice for a political read is The Man in the High Castle by Philip K. Dick. Amazon's adaptation of The Man in the High Castle left me cold, and so there was nothing for it but to belatedly turn to the novel, which is its source. Dick's tale is set 15 years after the end of the Second World War. German and Japanese victory over the Allies was secured in 1948, and the United States is carved up between the two powers, with a neutral zone between them. But where Frank Spotnitz's admittedly atmospheric adaptation relies on the tropes of the counterfactual thriller, Dick's original is a subtle and disturbing game that plays with reality itself. Its characters live in a world which is all too believable, especially in 2017. The Japanese and German overlords continue to vie for supremacy, and personal loyalties trump, pun intended, political process. The conquered can only escape their conquest through an act of imagination. And perhaps even that is impossible. 
My name is Tom Holland, and my choice of book is Hermann Broch's The Death of Virgil. The Death of Virgil has haunted me ever since I first read it. Begun in 1936 and finished as the Third Reich collapsed into ruin in 1945, it is the profoundest fictional meditation on the relationship between politics and art ever written. Inspired by the legend that Virgil, shortly before he died, requested that the Aeneid be destroyed, it casts Rome's greatest poet as a man haunted by the ambivalences and responsibilities of artists in an age of autocracy. Augustus, whose last meeting with Virgil provides the novel with its central encounter, has never been more charismatically or more terrifyingly rendered. I'm Robert McFarlane, and the novel I've chosen is This Blinding Absence of Light, a 2001 novel by the Moroccan writer Taha Ben Jaloun, first published in French with the title Cette aveuglante absence de lumière. This novel, which is translated by Linda Coverdale, recounts the experiences of a prisoner or prisoners in Morocco's notorious Tazmamat jail, a specialist incarceration facility set deep in the desert that's designed to destroy body and spirit by increments. The story that unfolds in the book is one in which determined cruelty and determined hope keep company, and in which the only possible counter to brutality is something close to mysticism. The voice that speaks to us offers a scoured and a scarred testimony, which is very hard to hear but also impossible to abandon. And the novel as a whole seems to me a terrible and triumphant vindication of the novel as a political form, proof of what prose fiction can still achieve, that even campaigning journalism, reportage or film still cannot. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague, Helen Lewis. Our music is by the Underscore Orchestra and is licensed under Creative Commons. We're produced by India Bork and mixed by James Shield. As there's no magazine for next week, buy two this week. Or better yet, subscribe. Subscribe.